Well, if you'd go ahead and make your way back to your seat, and uh, please give careful attention right now to the reading of the Word of God. Mr. Ryan Wheeler. Our scripture reading for today is from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the, air and sub- fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be unified to his wife. And they, became, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I'm thinking Ryan was about ready to preach there, which was great. It's great. I've got an interesting message for you today. I'm hoping you're ready for it. Uh, You'll want to take the study guide out of your worship folder so you can track along with me. And there's some blanks there for you and uh, to fill in and some white space. The off chance that I say anything worth remembering. You can write that down. In my small group this week, towards the end of our time together, we were wrapping up our group time, and one of the guys said, hey, Pastor Steve, I've got a question for you. Like, oh boy, here we go. What's going to happen here? And he looked at me in in the presence of the other guys, and he said, what are we supposed to do, what are we as Christians supposed to do in light of what's going on these days? And he went on to talk about his feelings about what's going on in our country right now and the erosion of rights and 
the erosion of freedoms in our country that people have enjoyed for centuries, and he's also was particularly bothered by some recent developments and headlines that he had seen that in his mind seemed to threaten the very foundations of our society. And he looked at me and said, what are we as Christians supposed to do? And kind of half jokingly, since I was put on the spot, I responded, well, I've actually become an advocate of the two-country solution. You know, there's the Mississippi River, right, that kind of bisects our country. You take all of these folks and say, you live over here, all these folks and say, you live over here, we'll see how it goes. And if they wanted, they could send missionary evangelists across the river, you know, to go try to make converts on the other side, and uh, that'd be great, right? And one guy chimed in, he said, well, I just want to make sure I'm on the side that has the Rocky Mountains, because I love the Rockies. (laughs) It was an interesting conversation, as you can imagine. Who can deny that the culture of the United States of America is shifting and shifting quite rapidly? In that same conversation, I mentioned to the group that when I see and hear what's going on, I really feel for older folks, like the World War II generation and the post-World War II generation, and just the, just the amount of cataclysmic change they've seen just during their lifetime. And I imagine so many of their heads are just kind of spinning. It's not my purpose today to engage in a discussion of politics. I am very keenly aware that we have people sitting in this room right now of a a variety of different political stripes. I'm more concerned that Christian people develop a worldview, a way of seeing reality that is truly Christian, that's rooted and anchored in the scriptures, and that reflects an allegiance to Jesus first and to his kingdom first. Doesn't the Bible say, seek first the kingdom of God? But having said that, if you do have a Christian worldview, then it should impact your outlook on everything, including your politics, how you vote and what candidates you support and so forth. It's just that you won't, if you have a Christian worldview, you won't pin your ultimate hope for world peace on any politician. For that, you'll look to Jesus and especially to his promised return, the return of the Prince of Peace. If you've been with us, you know we're in the middle of this short sermon series on the very first few chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And last week, I talked about the fact that the Bible is not just a a series of disconnected stories meant to teach us how to live a better life. Instead, it's one story with one hero, and it's more about what he has done than what we should do. There's a single overarching storyline woven all throughout the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, and I noted last week that it's really a drama. It's a drama presented in four acts. Do you remember this? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And uh, if you missed last week, I I really encourage you to go online and listen to it, enewlife.com, because The sermon today is kind of built on last week's sermon. Don't do that like right now, but sometime today. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The story of the Bible in four acts. And I also pointed out that the seeds of each of those four themes is found in these opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. But for today, you should know that I do have a particular 
set of lenses on. Because sometime during my preparation for this sermon, it was impressed upon me that in this Genesis account of creation, what we actually see, among other things, is the foundation of a thriving human society, or what is sometimes called human flourishing. When God, our creator, made the very first human society, he he built right into the foundation some cornerstones, some cultural cornerstones upon which to build a society that will be stable and strong. And it struck me that here in the 21st century, in the culture we live in, in this postmodern, individualistic, Western culture that we live in, it struck me that our society, our culture, has to some degree shifted off of those foundation stones. And just like my small group friend, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that our country is teetering on the edge. It's on the the brink of some really, really bad stuff. At the close of day six of creation week, our great God stepped back to survey all that he had done. And what did he say? It is very good. He said, I've done good work here. They're going to love this. This is, this is good. And that tells us that God originally made human beings and human culture to, to thrive, to be good. And initially it was that way because it was built on these cornerstones. And so today what I would like to do is point out exactly what those foundation stones were. There was a day in this country when, when all of them would basically have been assumed and, 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 and people would say, well, of course, but that's no longer the case. These ideas now are more likely to be challenged, to be debated, and in many places to just be kind of dismissed out of hand. Now, I need to apologize in advance. I'm not going to be able to go into the depth and detail on each of these that some of you would like, because if I did, we would be here on into the evening. So this is going to be more of an overview, okay? So here we go. From Genesis chapters 1 and 2, cornerstones of a good, God-designed human society, human culture. Number one, life. Life is a good gift from our creator, therefore value life. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. And man became a living being. Where did life come from? Did life really arise somehow from non-life, as we are expected to believe in our day? That is a popular view, but Genesis here tells us that life actually comes from God. Life flows from God, who is life. It's interesting, back in Genesis 1, it simply states the fact that God created man on day 6, but in Genesis 2, it appears to zoom in on day 6 and give us some more details. It says that the, the Lord God formed the first man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, which means that while God had initially created the whole universe out of nothing, now he used some of what he had created to form the first human being, right? 
But initially, that first human being, Adam, had no life in him until the Creator breathed his own life into the man's nostrils. Talk about details. Think about that for a moment. And it was in that very moment that Adam sprang to life. He, he became animated. He came alive. Just a reminder here that God would do that very same thing again thousands of years later to the second Adam, the second representative of the entire human race, Jesus Christ himself, laying there in that cold tomb. That same life of God was breathed into him, and he too came alive. Thank God. God can do that because life comes from God. And historically, cultures that value human life as a gift from God fare better, last longer, and reflect their creator more than those cultures that shift off of this cornerstone. But societies that sacrifice the lives of their young, whether it's on the altar of religious worship as some cultures have done, sacrificing their children to false gods, or whether it's on the altar of personal convenience, those societies will not ultimately endure. And I would add this, cultures that ignore their older population, that fail to honor their senior most members because they're in the way of so-called progress or they're deemed to be no longer necessary or no longer productive to society, those cultures will ultimately begin to disintegrate as well. In healthy, enduring cultures, all of human life, from the womb till the final breath, is honored and seen as a gift from God. Laws are made to protect human life. And you've got to know there's so much more I could say about this one. But I must move on for time's sake. This next cornerstone is also a divine gift. Number two, not only life, but gender. Gender is a good gift from our creator. Therefore, celebrate gender. Say, where do you get that? From the Bible, right here. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So celebrate maleness and femaleness. God created the genders and he said, it's very good. You're aware that massive efforts, coordinated efforts have been underway in our country for some time now to chip away, to chip away at this foundation stone. We're now being told that there are at least 81 genders to select from, a veritable gender buffet to choose from. There's a whole new vocabulary, right? A whole new lexicon of terms. We're told that human beings can now define themselves as being whatever gender they want, whenever they want, and that truly progressive people think like this, and if you don't support it, you're a narrow-minded bigot and you'll end up on the wrong side of history. From the new curriculum that's being foisted upon students in California to the push for gender-neutral versions of the Holy Scriptures, from the transformation of Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner to the threatened loss of 
tax-exempt status for churches that are deemed to be discriminatory by not supporting all of this gender fluidity, culture is shifting rapidly away from what the Genesis account says here about gender. What Genesis states as true was once readily accepted by nearly everybody, right? I mean, up until a few years ago, I mean, it was like the sky is blue and there are male and female genders. Everybody understood that that gender is equivalent to biological sex, that there are only two genders, that maleness and femaleness are fixed gender categories, and that this was designed by God, and it's very good. But now in our culture, all of that's being contested every day. Now listen, I'm a pastor, and I know that there are people who struggle with gender confusion. I know this. Maybe you are one of those people. And I think we should all agree that tormenting those who are confused about this or bullying of any kind. They have no place in our culture and no place in the church. But there are some things that our creator God has not left open for human beings to tamper with, and this is one of them. The rise of the autonomous self, the rise of the the sovereign self, the autonomous self, that's a phenomenon that has become the new religion of Western culture, and many people, including me, are convinced that ultimately it's going to have a destructive effect. Taking a jackhammer to this foundation stone of fixed binary gender categories will prove to be ultimately disastrous for our children, for their children, for their children. I do now understand why some couples are reluctant to bring kids into the world in this environment, but more on that later. Genesis tells us that gender, as God designed it, was a good gift from him that we should celebrate. And like the preciousness of human life, this too is a foundation stone of culture that will endure for generations. Here's another cultural cornerstone that seems to be crumbling in our day. Number three, dignity. Dignity. Dignity is a good gift also from our creator. Therefore, express it. Express it. Genesis 126 says this, Then God said, this is a discussion among the members of the Holy Trinity in eternity past, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. How many of you have heard the term imago Dei? Heard that term? Imago Dei. It means image of God. Genesis here tells us that human beings, unlike animals and plants and birds and trees and rocks, human beings were created in the image of our creator. That means that God has dignified every single person on the planet by stamping his likeness on each and every individual person. We are made in the image of God. No, we are not completely like God. We are not identical to God but we are in some ways like him. Ways that other creatures will never be. And as such, every person has an inherent worth and an inherent value. It's not based on how good looking you are or the the shape of your body or your intelligence or your social status, your popularity, net worth, or how many likes you get on social media or anything else our culture might want to attach a person's value to. We are valuable because we're made in the image of God, every single person. 
In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. He's right. That's in alignment. That comports with Genesis 1 and 2. Some people say, well, what about the fall in, in Genesis 3? Didn't that change things? Well, it didn't do away with human dignity. Yes, the image of God in humanity did get marred. It did get distorted to some degree. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm that a, a semblance of the image of God remains in all humans despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion against our Creator. And by the way, God is working through the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ to restore that image in those who believe. I don't know about you, but after watching the news some nights, I just find myself muttering, whatever happened to dignity? Whatever happened to this? Why, when did name-calling replace respectful dialogue? Why should we suppose that any good is ever going to come from belittling people that we disagree with? Then I thought, you know, I guess in one sense I shouldn't be that shocked. In a culture that has devalued human life, right? Why should I be surprised that, that our public discourse has become so demeaning, has become so coarse? After all... If everybody is really just an accident with no transcendent purpose for our existence other than survival, then why would anybody make any effort at all to treat other cosmic accidents with honor and with dignity? You ever heard of the law of unintended consequences? The law of unintended consequences? I think that, that's in play here. Because when our culture jettisoned, tossed out divine creation as a uh, a viable explanation for how we all got here, maybe, just maybe, we didn't think that all the way through. I think that short-sightedness is now slowly killing us in ways that we didn't anticipate. I also think that if this cultural trend of demeaning each other is ever going to change, it's going to be because followers of Jesus who know the truth are setting the pace in treating others with honor and with dignity. And God calls us to nothing less than that. Here's a fourth cornerstone of a healthy, enduring culture. Number four, work. Yeah, work. Despite what some might say, the Bible says work is a good gift from our Creator, so therefore embrace it. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. He gave him a job. To people who like to think that work is a result of the curse and should be avoided at all costs and that God created human beings just to lay around all day in paradise and sip adult beverages, sorry. The work mandate predates the curse, predates the fall. Genesis tells us that God created human beings to be workers, just like he is a worker and that it is good. It's good to work. Your boss not, might not be good, but you going to work every day is good. You doing a good job at your job, me doing a good job at my job is a good thing. Doing work that benefits society, that, that, 
that contributes to human flourishing is a good thing. And thriving human cultures that are filled with people who value work and who actually do work, that's a good thing. Yes, I know that some people are unable to work due to their limitations. We all understand that. We all get that healthy cultures are also compassionate cultures. They make provision for that reality. But rewarding people who are able but unwilling to work, that's never been the path to human flourishing. That's never been the path to healthy culture. Societies that by their policies promote a culture of entitlement where rights are elevated above responsibilities, where a majority of people believe they should be rewarded even though they're not contributing or carrying any of the load, that is a recipe for cultural decline. And we're seeing some of that in the United States too, aren't we? The fifth foundation stone. Number five, the created order. The created order is also a good gift from our creator, therefore, Affirm it. The Lord told Adam, Genesis 1:28, rule. Rule over the fish of the sea, rule over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I heard about this class it's a couple weeks ago now at Union Seminary, a, a Presbyterian seminary in New York City where in class one day, the students in the class were encouraged to come up to a bunch of potted plants there in the classroom and confess their sins to plants. That's what's going on right there. And the encouragement from the instructor was, we, students, we need to confess our sins against plants to plants. And I read that story and I thought, is this what theological education is coming to? This is a seminary class. Now I love plants. My wife had me put some flowers and plants out the other day, you know, fall stuff, right? And, and trees and shrubs. We were out at Lynn's Fruit Farm yesterday picking apples and the leaves are starting to change. I love nature, I love plants, I love trees. Yes, we're called to enjoy and to care for God's creation. We saw that in chapter two and verse 15. But this goes a little bit beyond creation care, does it not? This is more like creation idolatry. You can't do an honest reading of the creation account in Genesis one and two and not come away with the distinct notion that there is a hierarchy in God's created order. There is a pyramid of value in everything that God created, and at the top are not ferns. <laughs> the crowning achievement of God's creation was what? Human beings. The only beings created in the image of God. Only humanity was created in his image. Nature was not. Nature exists to glorify God, and also, it says, to serve humanity. God called Adam to rule over nature, to subdue it. That's called the great creation mandate, to tame nature, to domesticate the earth, to use natural resources for the good of human society. Now, of course, no, don't abuse that. Don't misuse those resources. That's a failure to care for creation. Use natural resources responsibly for sure, but do use them 
to sustain and enhance human culture. You know, one result of the fall of man is the substitution of the creation for the creator. We learned about that in our study of Romans. And creation is good for some things, right? For enjoyment, for beauty, for creativity, for sustenance, for resources. But creation makes a poor substitute for the creator. Whenever somebody embraces a worldview that mashes together creator and creation, what you get are things like what happened at Union Seminary, where students were bowing down to shrubs. Again, do not hear me say Please do not post on Twitter this afternoon that we should ignore environmental concerns. I'm not saying that. That we should ignore being responsible stewards of natural resources. That's that's just smart. That's just caring for God's creation. What I am saying is that this cultural cornerstone, that nature exists for mankind and not vice versa, has its roots right here in the story of creation. In Genesis 1 and 2. And when people in a given culture understand this, it's going to serve the whole society well. Number six. Still with me on these? Marriage. Marriage. Yeah. It's also a good gift from our creator. Therefore, uphold it. Protect it. Defend it. Let me read again from the creation account. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We're made of the same stuff, he's saying. And she shall be called woman. Now, in the Hebrew, the word man is ish. And the word woman is isha. I believe when ish first saw, first laid eyes on isha, he was like, whoa! (laughs) This This is for me right here. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a a man will leave his father and mother and be united or joined or literally glued to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I wonder what Pastor Steve is going to say about this one. Simply this, if I was the devil, if I was Satan, and I wanted to defame God, by distorting his image in human beings and bringing down human society as God created it to be, in addition to hammering away at all of these other cultural cornerstones, if I was Satan, I would put a fresh new chisel on my jackhammer and make sure I demolish this one, marriage. You see, human cultures are either going to do marriage God's way by aligning with his original design, or they're going to unwittingly bring about their own demise by devising their own new definitions of what it means to be married. And when a society thinks it has the right to tamper with God's definition, make no mistake, corrosion begins to set in. Anything is possible. And in my way of thinking, Satan, it's Satan who's behind this. I read about a gal named Elizabeth who found the love of her life and got married to 
her golden retriever. The wedding happened on national television three months ago. I read about a guy named Aaron who was so in love with his smartphone that he decided to elope with it to Las Vegas and marry his smartphone. That's interesting. I read about a lady who fell in love with the computer game Tetris. Remember Tetris? Shapes falling down. Fell, fell in love with that, fell hard for Tetris and decided to get married to Tetris because they were meant for each other. I read about one hard up guy who, who was brought together in holy matrimony with a Nintendo game character named Nini. a game character on a screen, not a real person. You can now marry just about anything. People have gotten married to rocks, to pets, to cars, roller coasters, to the Eiffel Tower. Will you have this tower to be your whatever? Everything is fair game for marriage, nuptials, once you throw off, once you cast off God's design for marriage. So, at the risk of sounding old-fashioned, outdated, dinosaur-like, archaic, and anti-progressive, I want to offer you God's definition of marriage from right here in the blueprints of Genesis 2, one man and one woman covenanted together for one lifetime. One man and one woman covenanting together under God's authority to form an exclusive Lifetime relationship of committed love and spiritual partnership, spiritual oneness. And that rules out a lot of things that pass for marriage in our day, doesn't it? I don't deny that those other kinds of love relationships exist. Love for Tetris, love for the Eiffel Tower. I just contend that they should not be called marriage. You probably know that marriage as an institution has fallen on some bad times recently. Fewer and fewer people in our country, especially in the younger generations, are marrying. Uh, maybe that's due to the epidemic of divorce, of painful divorce that they saw in their parents and they're thinking, hey, let's save ourselves some heartache. We can be friends, we can even be friends with benefits, we can move in together, but marriage, we just don't see the need for it. Plus, it's too much effort. <laughs> and what if it doesn't work out? Other people are not just put off by the notion of traditional marriage. Others are militantly opposed to it. They despise it. They are cultural revolutionaries who see traditional marriage as oppressive, hierarchical, restrictive of personal freedom. So they set out to overturn the whole thing, the whole notion. As a result, our culture is morphing, isn't it? Laws are changing. Long-embraced ideas about love and commitment are being overthrown, and marriage can now seem to bear very little resemblance to the honorable, noble, Christ-exalting institution that our Creator inaugurated back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And I think Satan is pretty happy about all of that. His work has been pretty effective. Who knows what's going to happen if this foundation stone crumbles completely. It's kind of scary to think about. Marriage, a gift from God. 
Another foundation stone that's seeming to crumble and disintegrate almost daily is the next one, sexuality. Sexuality. Foundation stone number seven, sexuality is a good gift from our creator. Enjoy it with your spouse. The last verse of Genesis 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now is where I get to talk about sex. Well, here's what we see here. What we see is that God's design in the creation story here combats two opposing notions about human sexuality. One notion is that sex is dirty and bad and evil and that in marriage it's just an obligation, just a duty to be performed. That's one viewpoint on sex. And the other one is that sex is good with anyone you want, whenever you want, whenever you feel the urge. Genesis tells us that sex was invented by God, that it was invented by our creator and that sexual desire for the opposite sex is normal and is good and that males and females were designed by God in such a way as to make that one flesh union of the sex act something thrilling, something beautiful, something that unites souls together. Sex as God created it was not dirty, it wasn't bad, it wasn't evil. It's very good, but it has boundaries. In the design of our creator, sex is to be reserved for that one special person with whom you enter into the marriage covenant. In God's design, sex is to be enjoyed within marriage, period. Say that out loud today some in, in different settings. How's that going to go over? Some people might say, well, how how oppressive, how restrictive, how confining of God, how old-fashioned. And I would say, yes, it's very old-fashioned. It dates way, 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 way back to the very beginning of time. A key tenet of the cultural religion of self-sovereignty is to say that people should feel free to have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want, to heck with the consequences, to heck with the consequences. But where has that mindset gotten us in this sexual revolution we've been in for 60 years here in our country? Where where has it gotten us? Millions of children being raised without a dad? Is that a good thing? An epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases, broken hearts, crushed spirits, damaged marriages, rampant divorce, fractured families, poisonous addiction to pornography, sexual predators, human trafficking, the social ills that have resulted from the sexual revolution in this country are so massive as to be nearly incalculable, the damage that's been done. And again, I believe the law of unintended consequences is in play here, and God weeps over it, I believe. People are used and abused, even little children are used and abused, bought and sold for sexual pleasure. In our nation, in our state, in our city, yeah, in our community, this is happening. We were promised freedom, right? It's the era of liberation and freedom. Well, what has been the result of that so-called 
sexual liberation? Has it not been enslavement and bondage? The best sex of your life, the best sex of your life will not be found in hooking up with somebody that you met online that you don't really know. The best sex of your life is not experienced with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because your hormones are raging and it looks so great on Netflix. The best, most satisfying sex of your life will not be found looking at images on a screen. Remember, that's somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. Put it in a family context. Somebody's mom or dad. Trust God, the best sex of your life won't come from that secret affair with that coworker that you're hiding from your spouse, as exciting as it might seem to you in the moment. The best sex of your life is the fruit of pouring your soul into your spouse for decades, for nurturing and protecting that relationship from any outside interference, from praying together, worshiping together, Serving God together, raising children together, building a family together, serving the Lord together, honoring each other through all the ups and downs of your lifetimes and being joined together in spirit, soul, and body. That's the best sex of your life. It doesn't get better than that. Great sex is a whole person, whole life act. So God says, enjoy wonderful sexual union with your spouse and enjoy it often. That is the good design of a good God for us. And I wish our culture would embrace that. Don't you? Now, I did mention having children, raising children. Here's the final cornerstone of an enduring culture that I want to point out from Genesis number eight. Family. Specifically, I'm talking about having children. Family is a good gift from our creator, so cherish it. When Adam and Eve came together, Ish and Isha, when they came together, God blessed them and said to them, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. I want everybody to know that in the mind of our creator, it is still a good thing for married couples to have kids which sex can actually lead to, right? Children are indeed the fruit of our sexual union. It's amazing to think about. Have you ever thought about the fact that the way God designed this whole thing, we get to be co-creators with him of eternal human beings? You ever think about the momentousness of that? Co-creators with God of beings, little beings who will live forever. Wow! It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And children are a gift from God. Yes, they are. I have some friends this week who just received that gift on Thursday, a precious little baby girl. What a joy! And here at New Life, we do love babies. We're apparently a very fertile congregation. Last year, there were 30 babies born to families in our church. However, in the larger culture, the trend, you know this, is going the other way. <laughs> Having kids, raising a family is not as widespread of a dream as it once was in our culture. 
Last year, for the seventh straight year, birth rates fell in this country. Cultural analysts, culture watchers have tried to speculate about the reasons for this, economic anxiety, the desire for personal freedom and independence, the cost of raising kids, and they are expensive. Other factors, but, but regardless of the reasons, it's happening. And some people are not bothered by that, but there are many who agree that this is kind of a disturbing trend and doesn't bode well for our country in the long run. And could we also just note what God knows and what many studies have shown? That children generally do better being raised in families where there are two parents, two parents, a mom and a dad, who are both committed to their marriage and also committed to creating a loving environment in their home where their kids can thrive and flourish and grow all within some boundaries because love establishes boundaries, common sense and biblical boundaries. That's still true. Studies have shown that that is still the case. And so I would agree with the scriptures that we should all cherish what we have in our families. Children are a gift from the Lord. Families are a gift from God. Yeah, it gets hard sometimes in family life. We'll all attest to that, right? But it's still good. And I could go on, but I won't. Historically speaking, these foundation stones, these cultural cornerstones have been exceedingly important in the formation of human culture and human societies, and especially those that last. And when cultures are built on the foundation of valuing human life and celebrating the differences between the two genders, the complementary relationship between them, when cultures are built on treating one another with dignity and respect and working hard for a living and stewarding God's creation well, when cultures are built on strong marriages and fostering healthy views of sexuality, when cultures are built on parents having children and raising them together, there's going to be a strength to that society that can endure for generations. And of course, underneath all of that, the bedrock, the bedrock beneath the foundation that's holding it all up is the belief in God. That there is a sovereign God who created the whole thing in the first place, who designed how human beings work best, who designed how human societies work best, who revealed it to us in his holy word. Without that belief being firmly embedded in a population, the foundation is destined to crumble. Belief in a creator God. The psalmist once wrote this. It's a question, really. If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a fair question. It sounds a lot like my small group friend, right? What can we do? What can we do? Well, I would suggest several things. We can remind ourselves how important these truths are, like we're doing today. It's just good to reaffirm these things and remind ourselves, this is important, this is important. A lot rides on this. We can stay anchored to these foundation stones ourselves. We can live this way ourselves. We can also seek to persuade other people to, excuse me, to embrace them. 
I would say as long as we live in a democratic republic, we can vote for candidates for public office who hold to these views in hopes that they will work to get God's laws respected everywhere in the broader culture, which is a good thing. We can resist attempts to undermine these. We can keep our ultimate hope for a just society tethered to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to come one day and rule and reign, it says, in righteousness and in justice. In justice. And one more thing, we can pray. We can pray, which is how I felt led to wrap up this unusual and maybe for some of you unsettling sermon. I want to ask if we could all spend a few moments praying together about these things. Could we? We can pray. We can do that. There are several different kinds of praying that could make sense right now for you as an appropriate response. And I'm going to ask you to come. I mean, we've got this big new platform here. You can come and fill this area up. I call some of you to come and pray for our country. And you're burdened about this. It seems to be sliding off of its foundation. Come and pray for our country. Some of you might want to come and confess some things, not to plants, but to God. How you've seen your life slipping out of alignment with some of these foundation stones that we talked about. How many of you, I wonder, have, we talked about work, right? Have friends who are struggling at work or friends who are between jobs. Or maybe you're between jobs. Maybe you're struggling at work. Come and pray and ask God to give you his mind regarding that. Maybe, some, maybe you know somebody who's struggling with gender identity issues. And let's not make just a big deal about it. Let's pray, right? Maybe there are people you know who are struggling in their marriage. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Wow, what a great time to grab your spouse by the hand and come and kneel and pray. Say, God, bring us back to your blueprints. Maybe you pray that God would help you to respect that person, to, to offer dignity to that person that you just don't like. Because <laughs> how they treated you, somebody at work perhaps, and you know, we talked about people created in the image of God, even that person, and, and you've not been treating them with the respect and honor that God would have you to. Come and say, God, change my heart about this person. You can come and pray for people you know who are caught in sexual sin or struggling in some way with their sexuality. Maybe, we talked about having children, maybe you know a couple who wants to have children and hasn't been able to. And you could come and pray for them and say, God, move, show yourself strong. Bless that couple with your grace. I don't know what it is, but I'm gonna ask you to take these next few moments. I hope a number of you will just come symbolizing your humility before the Lord and pray. And let's ask God to work and to intervene. Amen? All right, let's pray together.